Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 186 for March 5th, 2009. Listener feedback number 61. Security Now is brought to you by Audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by Go to My PC. Wherever you go, access your PC and all of your files, programs, and email remotely with GoToMyPC. For a free trial of this award-winning service, visit GoToMyPC.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now with Steve Gibson, the show where we cover all things secure, privacy, online, theft, that kind of thing. Steve is a real expert in the subject, partly by force. And I think some of your interest in security began when you were being attacked on, yeah, your, it was on, your, a, on your site. It started off defensively, yeah, so yeah. yeah. And, of course, you found spyware on your system, was the first to coin the phrase spyware and write the first anti-spyware program. You've since handed that off to uh, pros, and I'm sure you're, you're glad. That's a, that's, oh, boy. That's yes. a never-ending fact, job. Fact, it, was becoming very que- it was becoming very clear quickly that this was, would, you know, I mean, it would be a full-time job. And much as I think spyware is important, it's just sort of not my nature to go running around chasing after these weenies and try to yeah. figure out, you know, what's going on. I much prefer sort of the raw technology. Let's do something new than uh, than that. So, you know, the guys at LavaSoft sort of um, uh, picked up the the mantle and have that done a good Adaware. job. Adaware, with Adaware, Spybot, and now, of course, everybody. You know, it's funny. Yep. I think uh, for a long time, antivirus companies were reluctant to say uh, we will also fight spyware because they didn't. They thought, well, maybe this is commercial speech. It's not exactly a virus. I think there's now no question. <laughs> well, yeah, and remember mind. too that early on, it were there was like Conducent and Oriate were two commercial companies right. that were installing this junk in people's machines that really infuriated people. Yet they were not, you know, rogue, malicious, you know, hackers. They were right. companies that you know someone had mistakenly given some venture capital to right, so right yeah uh let's see here we have we got number 186 for q a number 61 questions you've got questions steve's got answers and some of them are about our great special that we did i hope everybody enjoyed gray-haired computer oh i we got a lot of feedback about that i i, I included just a couple little things we have a really interesting note from uh, that will that I think people are going to find it fascinating from the chief technology officer of PKWare. Oh, you're who heard kidding! Me, heard me talking about who listened to Security Now and heard me talking about zip uh, encryption. So we get the whole story on that. PKWare. There's a yeah. legendary name in that computing. Wow. Well, and and it was Phil Katz of Phil PKWare. Katz. You know, Phil Katz is PK. That's where that comes from, and uh, he invented the zip file format. That wow. was his. Oh, that's fun. Well, we'll talk about that in just a second. Yep. Also, uh, any errata we want to pick up from previous episodes, the latest security news, too. Before we go too much farther, let's uh, acknowledge the great folks at GoToMyPC. They make this possible. 
they are, are one of our sponsors. Go to my PC from Citrix. I've been using it for years. I've known these Citrix guys for years. They are brilliant in, in terms of understanding how technology works, uh, in particular how Windows works. And they've got remote access down to a science. If you've not used Go to My PC, maybe you've used uh, one of the other remote access programs. And you know, a lot of times when you use them, they're hard to get working. You have to configure the firewall, open ports. There are security issues, significant ones with many of these. Um, there's also the issue of speed. Sometimes they're just you know so slow you don't want to use them. I can I can happily report that Go to My PC has solved these issues. It's the fastest one out there, and that's, again, from their deep, intimate knowledge of the internals of Windows. It's completely secure. There's never been a security issue ever with GoToMyPC. It uses 128-bit SSL. It is, it is you know, rock solid. And uh, because they use this great kind of NAT traversal system where they have, it's it, you know, you go to a, uh, the GoToMyPC website and then to your computer. Your computer is, in effect, connecting to the GoToMyPC website. They completely eliminate any router issues at all it's just brilliant here's what happens you can do it right now go to go to my slash security now it takes a couple of minutes uh, literally two minutes i'm not saying you know a little while it takes two minutes to install this on your pc now now anywhere you go an internet cafe an insecure spot in borneo uh, i mean somewhere you know i, I don't want to single out borneo anywhere you know it could be a shady place down on sunset strip you're 128 bit encrypted right to your office you log on to go to my P- actually the way it works. You log on to go to my PC.com, username and password. Now you're 128 bit encrypted to go to my PC.com and then encrypted to your office computer. You could send and receive email, run any program, access any network resource. You can even open a browser and surf. It's fast enough to do that. This is why PC World gives it their world class award year after year for best remote access software. And trying it free is the best way to see how it'll work for you, especially if you're planning a trip or you just want to go home early. Go to my PC.com. Slash security now. Get it a, give it a try. I know you're going to like it th- free for the next 30 days. And we thank them really for their support. Citrix has been... Citrix is is now, I think, along with Audible, they're keeping this this network alive. They are our biggest supporters, and we just, we're just very, very grateful. Steve Gibson, any news in the security world? Unfortunately, we do have news. Uh, I was afraid of that. Yeah, um, we haven't had a bad Excel exploit for a while, so I guess maybe one was due. We have a zero, a new zero-day Excel remote code execution exploit, which has been found in the wild. Um, anyone who has Office installed who opens one of these malicious email attachments that contains an Excel spreadsheet, even though it might be labeled something differently. I mean, so you you, you get a link in the mail, in, in your email, it could have a, a name that makes it look like it's not an Excel spreadsheet because someone w- might be thinking, wait a minute, you know, why is Aunt Mary sending me an Excel spreadsheet? But um, uh, it ends up triggering Excel um, and uh, makes a remote code exploit possible. This is cross-platform, uh, too, by the way. This is- yes, I was going to say it's yeah. Office 2000, 2002, 2003, and 2007 on Windows. And over on the Mac side, it's both Office 2004 and 2008. Mm-hmm. So this is clearly code which has been in Excel for quite a long time. 
And somebody finally found a, a way of glitching it and and leveraging that into to be able to get code to run on your machine. So right now, you know, Microsoft has acknowledged it. They've got their article. It's a uh, nine six eight two seven two, which says they know about this. And and you know, I'm sure that I mean, I imagine that uh, the second Tuesday of next month we will see a patch for this because you know they're saying it's it's only being used in targeted instances which is to say you know when someone wants to get a certain executive they'll they'll send them email hoping to be able to take over their machine but that's the way these things always start and before you know it they'll be you know spamming people at you know in mass trying to get this to happen so and then uh, adobe has a couple problems um uh we mentioned a a known problem that was not going to be patched until March 11th for version 9 of Acrobat and a week later March 18th for the earlier versions um exploits are now in the wild so this is now being actively exploited as we expected it would be so i just wanted to give people a heads up that uh about a week from now, on, on March 11th, you'll be able to get an update for Acrobat. And if you're a, an avid Acrobat user, that's something you want to consider, certainly want to consider doing. Um, and, you know, we'd also talked about last week the idea of putting it inside of Sandboxy, causing Acrobat to run in a sandbox. Um, and if you open PDFs from your browser and you've sandboxed the browser, then an Acrobat is sandboxed by being part of the browser's sandbox. So, you know, I just wanted to caution people, this is out there in the wild, and it's going to take a few weeks for Adobe to catch up. Meanwhile, there are some new problems with Flash. Adobe's Flash player has multiple known problems. Right. Denial of service, information disclosure, clickjacking attacks, and remote code execution. A whole bunch of things. For this, however, there is an update, and my system notified me a couple days ago that I had that there was a new version of Flash available. So... Um, anything that is over um, um, on Windows and and Mac is 10.0.12.36 and earlier are troublesome. And over on Linux, 10.0.15.3 and earlier are troublesome. And so for what, what you need is just go to uh, Adobe's site or see if you can update your Flash player and also uh, your player that's embedded in your browser. If you've got a, a, a Flash embedded there, you want 10.0.22.87. Or if you're still back on version 9 of Flash, you want 9.0.159.0 in order to get the Flash player that's been patched to fix these multiple problems. And the last little blurb I had is just to note that uh, Facebook and MySpace are becoming a larger battleground for um, various types of exploits. They have naturally sophisticated APIs that are, allow that are allowing these widgets to be created. And as unfortunately happens, when we, when we add complexity and technology, we inadvertently create opportunities and, and doorways for, for various kinds of exploits. So there are now, there, there's a worm that has sort of resurfaced called the Kube face worm, K-O-O-B-F-A-C-E, which is now 
back and active over in Facebook, um, you it it takes advantage of your of the whole social networking mode to send a note to people you know saying that that you want them to see something when and you know so click this link to go to to you know on YouTube to see this funny video you found. Well, it, that link. Take which you don't send this worm that you've you've unfortunately acquired by doing this yourself. It sends sends them to a fake YouTube site that takes advantage of known problems um, in in client systems to install malware and essentially to put a, a, a backdoor trojan on all the machines it infects and it's spreading widely. So. You know, it's it's the <laughs> it's the same story that we run across before. Is you know, we get a, a new environment. Um, obviously, Facebook and MySpace have been attracting a lot of people who are less computer and security savvy than they might otherwise be. They get a, this kind of a note from someone they know, and they go, "Oh, look, you know, I want to see the funny video." And certainly, it's not the first time they've received something like that. Right. So it's um. You know, it's another problem just to be aware of. And if you know people who are less security aware, uh, you might mention that this kind of thing is happening on Facebook and MySpace and to be very circumspect, even if and when these things come from people they know. If it's if if it's in any way different from from what they expect, they they should be careful about it. I've had this happen many times uh, or something similar happen many times I think it was Coop Face on uh, my my Facebook, and what happens is sometimes people's get sites, uh, Facebooks get hacked, and so you get a message. As you said, you get a message from somebody you know, and it just has a link in it, and it looks completely, you know, yep. generic, generic and sensible. It doesn't look like something odd necessarily, um, uh, and so you're very tempted because you feel like you're in a safe space to click that link. Yep. It, do you get infected the minute you click it? Yes, well, you you click it and you go to a fake site and and a, a fake YouTube site. Oh, then where, they ask for the the login. Or no? Uh, oh, oh, I know what it is. You download. You have to download a new player and update. That's exactly update, what it is. Yes, it says. Oh, update. you need to update your player <laughs> yes, in order to right. play this video. That's yeah. exactly what it is. Yeah, yes. Yeah. 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 And uh, then, of course, it's, uh, see this. And is it's not. It's not a new player. A you're new downloading. Player. Yeah, it's a bad guy. It's uh, definitely yeah, that's stuff. nasty. I've seen that's been going on for a while. It's happened to me several times. And what I'll do is I'll immediately send a note to that person saying your site has been hacked. Yeah. Um, uh, you need to change your password. Somebody's putting out messages on your under on, on your, your name. And you should also tell everybody don't don't click that link because it's a bad right. link. Yeah. Well, we've put the word out. OK, a couple two uh, a couple last little bits of errata. Um, I did want to mention I was listening to you talking about. The the issue of that I have with the Kindle too, and that is a non-replaceability of its battery. And I did want to mention that both of my prior Kindle ones, during the year and a half I had them, had noticeably reduced battery life, and that that unfortunately, and this goes, I mean, this is pertinent not to just Kindle users, but you know, laptop users and iPod users and and, and all kinds of users. Um, Lithium-ion technology not only has a cycle life limitation, but just a a shelf life limitation of a few years. That is, even if you were an infrequent user of your Kindle, you would find that the battery itself ages 
even when it's not being continually cycled. And after a few years, you'll see a reduced battery life. So I'm really not happy that that the Kindle 2 has has switched over to this non-replaceable battery. Although you got to wonder what the battery looks like in there because the Kindle 2 is so thin, you know, it's, it's clearly not something you're able to get off the shelf. So but it's unfortunate that they, that they chose for whatever reason not to do what they did before, which was you know, allow it to be opened somehow and for the user to be able to replace the battery. I was I was going to let mine get really bad and then, you know, like just to see how bad it got. But it was both of them because I remember I dropped mine on right. on the edge from about two feet. I mean, a little gentle drop on the carpet. And I was surprised that it completely whacked out the display. They I mean, Amazon was wonderful about replacing it for me. But I remember even then that that first one's battery life was clearly shortened by that by my just my regular usage at that point after less than a year and the second one was following the same following the same path so i'm a little worried i'm i haven't yet brought my battery all the way down but it's looking to me like this battery life is not as much longer as they tout it for the kindle 2 have you not at all i was very disappointed with it yeah um it's uh you know they they said 25 percent greater no in no, fact, I think I've, it's, I've depleted it in a night or two. Yeah, and 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 is that without using any text to speech? Without text to speech, without yeah. any audio playback, I left the radio on. But you're kind of tempted to do so because it's a software switch, not a hardware switch. Right. It's, it's a little bit less obvious when it's when it's on. I've also discovered that it was on when I am not using it. Well, and I leave it on because I subscribe to daily stuff. So um, yeah, I mean, and that's another thing too. I was hoping that when they put it under software control, they would give you an option of like schedule. have it. Yes, Good exactly. Idea. Have it wake up. You know, it knows what time it is, presumably. Have it wake up and and check for anything new and then immediately go back to sleep. That way, you know, and if, if it, only did it, it doesn't even have to know what time it is. If it, if it did it hourly, that would be fine. Or, or, or you know, you choose how often. Yeah. You know what? Yeah. That's brilliant. And I bet you they'll do that in firmware because they, they haven't improved the battery life. It's a little disappointing. No, I think not. And in fact, my guess is that one of the reasons the page turn is faster and image display. Remember how long the first Kindle took? If you if you were switching to a page that had like that was much more complex or had an image, it would kind of. Yeah. You know, I mean, it really struggled. It doesn't do that now. So my guess is they've juiced up the processor in order to get the next page up on the screen at the cost of some battery life. Yeah. And then someone somewhere posted some. I don't remember now where it was, but I made a note of it here to just mention that. It's unfortunate that the Kindle didn't incorporate Wi-Fi because had it, it could be international if they wanted it to be. I mean, oh, you know, they are it's only, you know, it's, it, it's the EVDO Sprint connection that is sort of locking it to domestic. Yet there's a, you know, obviously a huge international interest in this. And had they given it Wi-Fi, then although you wouldn't have the really cool cellular connectivity, you'd have, you know, internet connectivity which you know would have allowed them to do the whole content that's a very good point yeah and then finally um several weeks ago i fumbled around trying to come up with an explanation for hysteresis and it's been (laughs) bugging me ever since that i that all started because i read a definition out of a uh, antique radio television dictionary that dane got for me and I thought of a perfect, clear example. I was discussing okay. keyboards with a friend of mine, and I realized that he, that a the snap 
of a key switch when you press a button and it snaps. Yeah. That's a perfect example of hysteresis. Oh, really? Because it's a nonlinear response. If you just had a spring where as you increase the force on the spring, it, it goes down in proportion to the force and then, and then, you know, smoothly. And then as you bring the force back off, uh, again, you get displacement in the, that is direct proportion to the, to the, to the force, which is, you know, typical spring action. That's, zero hysteresis but if instead like any keyboard that's got not not the mushy keyboards that have no hysteresis but anything with a snap in it when you reach a certain point suddenly something happens that snap action is a you know you you've you, you've crossed a threshold suddenly the force required drops and and the key moves in now even if you come back off to the same point where that snap occurred, the key stays down until you go much further back where you got the the same sort of nonlinear event on the way back. And those the it, it's the the separation of those two the the snap where it occurs go downstroke and the snap where it occurs upstroke. They are different locations, and that gives you if if you were to plot force versus position you would end up with not a straight line not even a curved line you actually end up with a loop because the 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 force and and position curve is different on the way back than it is on the way down and that gives you a loop and that's the characteristic hysteresis curve that so, is a, that's an excellent uh, and and accessible definition much better yeah, than uh, than the, the one in the book <laughs> or whatever I fumbled with. I don't remember what it was a couple weeks ago. I just, Oh, I thought afterwards, Oh, that really clarified everything. It's for a hard thing to come up with a, an accessible um, uh, definition of some of the abstract concepts that we deal with in, in, uh, in uh, computer science. Well, and my problem is verbal. I mean, I could absolutely draw a diagram oh, and wave my hand around, yeah. for, but you know, uh, the bulk of our listeners are, are You're listening. Uh, listeners and, and so that's my skill i think if they, i have one skill is that I, I sometimes not always come up with a good analogy that makes this stuff make sense but not always i remember the time i was using sliced cheese to describe how audio is sampled that didn't work so well okay <laughs> not, not a recommendation <laughs> so you try <laughs> you and try. on that note i will share a very short spin right comment <laughs> okay uh, from Germany, a listener in Germany, uh, Arn Klawiter, K-L-A-W-I-T-T-E-R, Arn, Arnie, or maybe it's Arnie, A-R-N-E, uh, Arnie Klawiter, he just said, uh, he, he said, thank you slash spin, right? He said, just wanted to say thanks, all caps, for recovering 32 gigs of data when nothing else helped. Yay. I tried so many other programs unsuccessfully. Spinrite really convinced me, and additionally, it is so easy and intuitive to use. Well, that's because he's German. It sort of has a strange it makes interface. Sense to me. <laughs> get that. So intuitive to use. Great product, and then he signed it. So I just wanted to that's thank nice. him for sharing his his uh, uh, short. It makes sense to experience. me, and I'm not German. It makes perfect. It's very clean. Yeah. It's very simple. It's uh, good. It's just the way you know. It, it it's the last DOS program I still use. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, we're going to take a break. Come back. We will uh, talk. Uh, we have 12 questions, good and true, from you. Oh, and some really cool things, too. Yes. yes. Can't wait, but I do want to 
mention uh, audible.com. We don't usually do an audible uh, po- uh, mention. I guess we do on this show. I always think of this show as the tech, you know, subjects, nerds on site and uh, Starro. But Audible is good, too. And, you know, Steve and I are always talking about books and reading. And now Steve's a guy who has to read. He likes his Kindle. But those of you who can listen to a book, Audible is such a great choice. Audible is, it's, I don't want to say it's like your mommy reading to you, but it... Yeah, don't say that. <laughs> that really isn't going to sell it, is it? It's even better than, <laughs> even better than your Kindle reading to you. It is a lot better than your Kindle reading to you. And I'm not complaining about the Kindle's reading, but uh, there's a big difference between somebody who is performing, who understands the words they're reading, and a computer that doesn't have the faintest clue about uh, what it's reading. Uh, Audible is, uh, go to audible.com slash security now. You can sign up today for a free account. I like this because you get a chance to really try before you buy. I really encourage all of our advertisers i think they all do this to have free trials because you're smart you know you're going to know if you want this or not we don't want to trick you into anything you go there you sign up for an account that's going to be a gold account at audible.com slash security now gold account gives you one book a month first first month is free and if you decide not to stick around you get to keep the book anyway but let me tell you you get ready because you're gonna it's like the best bookstore in the world not as many as amazon yet they're getting you know they're working on it 50 plus thousand titles. The sci-fi, as I've mentioned before, is now really uh, excellent. In fact, it's the only place you can get many of these books in audio. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that, uh, one of the problems with sci-fi is these sci-fi publishers just don't have the money in many cases to make audio books. So Audible has taken it upon themselves to create them in their own studios. They bring in the best actors in the world. I'm talking about, they call it the Audible Frontiers series. The only way you can get many of these books in audio. And boy, what a great selection now. When they first started, it wasn't, you know, they they had a handful of sci-fi. Now they've got a ton of them and some of the best books out there. They've also done some really great things. They've got sci-fi authors making lists. Orson Scott Card selects. James Patrick Kelly introduces you to cyberpunk. This will help you understanding and finding stuff that you're going to like if you want to know more. Um, just a great selection of sci-fi. Um, I'm always, you know, I go to the bookstore and I look at the sci-fi shelf and they're all tabloid, you know, those crazy, you know, busty women. And, you know, it's just kind of, you know, the, the covers are not a good way to judge a sci-fi book. Do you find that, Steve? You look at a cover and you go, I don't, <laughs> I don't think this is going to be a good book. But that's because yeah. for some reason they got to go with the crazy tabloid stuff, right? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know why they do that. Um, they're getting a little bit better about it. But but here, go to audible.com uh, slash security now. Sign up. You could do a couple of things. They have, they have customer reviews. They have very good synopsis. And best of all, they have uh, previews. So you can listen to the audio. You can listen to the narrator. See if, you know, you're going to enjoy this particular reader in this particular book. Um, Kay Kenyon has written uh, a a great series of books. Um, Bright of the Sky is the first uh, three-book series. It just ended with City Without End. This is, this is uh, I'm told, I haven't read it yet, and I'm going to read it, uh, among one of the greatest sci-fi series. I just finished. I'm looking for a new one. I just finished uh, the Peter F. Hamilton, finally, Night's Dawn trilogy, the world's longest books. And it kind of petered out, if you'll pardon the Well, choice. there was no way it could not peter out, for crying yeah. out loud. 20,000 pages later or whatever. I don't know. I, so 
And that one is not yet on Audible, but the other Peter F. Hamilton uh, books are the Judas Unchained uh, and um, what was the what was the Pandora's first? Box? Pandora's, the first of Pandora's those Box. Two. That's yeah. another great one. Bright of the Sky, I think, is going to be my next trilogy. <laughs> I like sci-fi trilogies because you get involved in the world, right? The uh, Tire and the Rose, Kay Kenyon. Uh, it's kind of sci-fi fantasy. It's not your kind of thing. I'll give you a little synopsis. In a landlocked galaxy that tunnels through our own. See, I like that. Wait, a, a landlocked galaxy. That tunnels through our own galaxy. Ah, okay. The entire is a bizarre and seductive mix of long-lived quasi-human and alien beings gathered under a sky of fire called the Bright. I just see, to me, I like that. No, no. Not your cup of, th- cup of tea, but mine, I like it. Kay Kenyon does the introduction. You know where he, got, he got the title, though, because the sky is bright, I the guess. The sky is bright. It's, yeah. it's fire. That's bright good. of the sky, the entire and the rose. Anyway, I'm, I'm putting this down. Might want to take a listen to this or any of the tens of thousands of volumes at audible.com. I just love listening to sci-fi. It's like, it's like watching a movie in your mind. Audible.com slash security now for your free trial. Pick this or any, any book. You get a credit toward any book on the Audible uh, collection. Audible.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of the Security Now program. Now, ladies and gentlemen, without Yay. further fanfare or adieu, <laughs> adieu, not adieu, 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 adieu. adieu. <laughs> without doing no more, I'm going to read you our first question. Ladies and gentlemen, this comes to you from listener Mike uh, with a cool retro PC tip. He says, hi, Steve, as you may have gone into retro mode in regard of old PC hardware. I guess this is another guy who heard our last episode, the gray haired computing episode. I just wanted to give you a tip in regard to the retro bright project do you know about the retro bright project i no. haven't heard of this it's retro retro bright with a zero not an o yep retro wikispaces.com uh or you can just google retro bright with a zero they offer a cool as in cheap or free solution to the annoying yellow color old pc equipments tend to get nice yeah every one of my old beige boxes is now yellowed yeah, and in, in fact, it's it's distressing when you see, you know, what used to be a nice, like even a gray color will turn really this sort of gross, dark orange, yellow color. What happened was, first of all, I wanted to acknowledge my, th- th- this mention by Mike is the first one I encountered. But as I was scanning through our, the, um, our mailbag, I ran across like four or five other people. So I wanted to acknowledge them too. Many people who... You know, knew that I was digging around back in nostalgia, old machines, uh, sent this news of this retro bright. And they on, on the site, they show some before and after shots. And it is phenomenal what this does. What happened was some chemical engineers got together, uh, thanks to the Internet, and actually figured out what it was about the plastic that was causing it to yellow. It turns out it's the fire retardant chemistry. Oh which is mixed in, which is one, one of the reasons why monitors are, you know, among the worst yellowers mm-hmm. of all. In a few is, years, they turn yellow. Yeah. And uh, so they've come up with a formula, which interestingly enough, it UV is one of the things that causes the monitors to yellow. You may have noticed, like, if your monitor is in a window, one side of it is, like, much yellower, you know, the, the window-facing side than the other it's because of the UV that that ends up. Although I think glass really attenuates UV, but but still there there, there does seem to be some 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 photo based effect. Anyway, 
they use this formula with UV. Uh, one example was it was done in Arizona and someone in the UK did it with a UV light in order to get enough UV. But it it really returns the plastic to its original look, like a light gray where it had become dark yellow. They show a Commodore keyboard sort of before and after. And, and they've got both a, a, a low viscosity liquid and a gel to make it easier to apply this stuff. So, you know, I just wanted to share it with our listeners and to thank the, the other people who also mentioned it because I thought that was very cool. It just, you know, it does bring that, you know, it takes that antique look off, which some cases you really want off because, you know, keyboards and, and computers and monitors really get kind of gross looking over time. Oh, yeah, and if you're going to collect this old stuff, you're really going to want to make the yeah. make the difference. That's really, really neat. Retro bright. Question two, Chad Young in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He mentions an Apple solution for Wi-Fi guests. Apple recently added a guest networking feature. Boy, that's smart. To their airport extreme and time capsule devices. This appears to be based on their dual band technology, wherein they utilize two individual radios in each device. That's MIMO. I think all MIMOs do that. I was just going to say that that's entirely separate from the yeah. guest networking, right? Oh, okay. Uh, I remember this being discussed in a past episode. I thought I'd pass it along. So what are, do you know what they're doing? Yes, what Apple is, has done, they've really done it the right way. I wanted to bring this up because I don't think we've ever really talked about this notion of guest networking, although some router manufacturers over on the, like, like D-Link and Linksys and so forth, have begun to offer such a feature. However, not always in the right way. Apple has done it exactly right. Uh, you know, I don't want to say as you'd expect, but, you know, I do think that Apple often does things right. And that is, they have, I mean, it's, it's, if you and I and our listeners were to design this, it's what we would end up with, which is, it is a, it is an entirely separate, um, configurable page for the, uh, airport extreme and the time capsule where you give it its own SSID, its own crypto key and, uh, and, and similar configuration and anyone who connects has no access to the LAN. They only have access out to the Internet. So it is, I mean, it's exactly what you would like if someone comes over and they need to use your Wi-Fi. You could give it, you know, still use WPA2, um, maybe give it, you know, a long but simple to enter password because you're not going to use it. And anyone who does has no access to your network. They only have access to the Internet. I mean, it's it's beautiful. It's a great way to do it. Now, what you want? We use a uh, we have a wired router. Everybody's on the wired router, and then from that wired router, we have a Wi-Fi router for our guests. Is there a way to do something like that with a multi-router setup? Well, or we have to it, do that three-way router thing. That you we really need about. to do the three-way router. Yeah. Otherwise, you are, you do so. In what you just explained, where you have your Wi-Fi inside of another router, well, it also has access to the network upstream of it which is your LAN right so you really need to do a, a a three router configuration in order to really create isolation which is enforceable in the face of any kind of spoofing attacks but the point i wanted to make about this is that don't assume that guest networking is always done the way apple did it which is correct there are some guest networking features that you're really going to want to test out before you trust them um for example some don't block access to the LAN. Some don't allow encryption at all instead of having separate <laughs> encryption. So, 
there there are there are guest networking features that are just lame. I mean, they're really it's it's unfortunate they didn't do more. They just sort of said, oh, we're going to add that feature, so we have a bullet point on our box. Right. Um. So you know, you really your mileage may vary. I wanted to to note to people that when they upgrade their firmware, they may find that feature beginning to appear in later firmware, but absolutely check it out and make sure that when you log in that way, you know, un- understand what the criteria are because it may not be something that you want to use. Certainly not something you want to leave on all the time. Whereas with Apple's configuration, you could absolutely set up a, you know, a, a basically a, a parallel Wi-Fi environment that anyone can use where they don't get access to the rest of your internal LAN and other machines only get access to the net, which is just beautiful. It's the way that's, it should that's be. That's excellent. That's really, yeah, that is very bright. I, I guess we'll have to just get a, get a, the easiest thing to be to do is get an airport extreme. Not the I'm cheapest. actually considering that myself, Leo. Yeah, they're not like, the Why not? It's just a beautiful solution. Yeah. I wish they were less expensive. Gary S. Martin in Tehachapi, California shares a gray-haired memory. Are you gray-haired? I can't tell. Oh, yeah. I'm gray. Oh, it's gray. It it went gray. I don't know when that was, but it sort of snuck up on me. I've looked at some pictures that aren't that old. It's like, well, it wasn't gray then, but it sure is now. Boy, I sure would love to do another one of those uh, specials with Ray Matthews. Well, and I have to say, Leo, we got a phenomenally positive response, much more than I expected. And interestingly, they were really of two classes. There was the nostalgic response, which which Gary's going to share with us here in a second. But then there was also like the 20-something response from people who have never had an experience before Windows 98. And it's like they don't remember any of this stuff so it was really fascinating to our younger listeners for much the same reason it was right. or i mean for an entirely different reason which is wow core what's, I heard <laughs> what's that core? yeah <laughs> oh the good old days well gary uh, uh says your special gray-haired computing episode brought back a lot of memories uh the first computer i ever saw in person was a pdp8 at cabrillo high school lompoc california i was there for a chess meet a nerd after my own heart and it was in their computer lab. They had a lunar lander game. Oh, yeah, I remember this. They loaded it from paper tape. It displayed vertical velocity and altitude on the front panel lights. You used a front panel toggle switch to turn on the main engine at the right time to make the vertical velocity go to zero at zero altitude. I believe that it printed fuel, speed, and altitude to the teletype it did. I remember this. As yep. the game ran, it was the first computer game I ever played. And what a waste of paper. Uh, well, and you know, it's it's it's, it's interesting because I'm... I'm planning to do a, a set of little, short, easy to enter programs mm, for the PDP-8. Yeah, you know, I call them toggle toys. And uh, and I, I, and Gary's note, real, uh, you know, made me realize that's a perfect a perfect example. I've for some weird reason I've always loved the Lunar Lander game because it's it's very simple yet it's very tricky. You know, you yeah. you you can you turn the thrust of your little spaceship on and off and you need to you need to watch your altitude and your height and of course the goal is not to crash and so it it involves you know like you know um turning your engine on and off just enough to bring the altitude down without increasing your speed and then a little more at the end there in order to slow yourself down when you're just a little bit above ground and then and then touch down so and it's it's what I love about it is it's it's pure simple calculus. It's just integration and you know velocity and and force. So conceptually very simple, but but you know it makes an interesting sort of 
diff, just difficult enough sort of problem. So, and, and what I remember is where it would print out velocity, altitude, and fuel. And then it would say, you know, like you'd, you, you'd put in a number from, you know, one to nine, how hard do you want to burn the engines? And then it would put out, you know, velocity or, or zero. And then it would do again, velocity, altitude, and fuel. And so you'd be looking at those trying to judge as time was going by as, you know, as it printed out each iteration. It's amazing. You know, back then we just thought that was just way cool. <laughs> I think it's actually going to be uh, your, your little uh, uh, toys will be a very useful way to learn programming also because um, it's in a very kind of basic way. You can see how you do what you do. And I think it's not a bad thing to learn how to program at the machine level to understand what the machine's doing before you get to higher level languages. Well, in fact, there are there are it's a fun, it's surprising how much PDP PDP eight resource is on the net. Hmm. The PDP eight is specifically often chosen by you know like in um, assembly language and machine architecture classes specifically because it is so simple. It's you know it's got six instructions right. and then and then some some math. In, uh, a single sort of math instruction and an IO instruction to for a total of eight because there are only three bits that for the opcode and so you know it it not only it's the it's the restriction of it that makes it interesting it makes it easy to learn because there isn't much to learn but then you know the way they built it it's like okay how are you going to solve this problem with only you know two twigs and a toothpick right right you know, so very cool all right we have our next question from New Zealand. Bill in Auckland wonders about mixing security on web pages. I see this alert a lot. Yeah. I'm a web developer, and uh, on a project I'm working on, I discovered something strange. It deals with mixing secure pages and non-secure pages. Most web developers know if you have a secure page and you have an item on the page that points to a non-secure URL, an image, for instance, the browser gives you that warning. You have a mix of secure and non-secure items on here. As I understand it, the reason is the potential for information leakage. That's a good thing to notify people about. I recently discovered if you have a non-secure page and embed an iframe that points to a secure page, you don't see this warning. Uh Uh-oh. Also, in this scenario, the end user has no way of knowing that the page in the iframe is secure since, of course, the padlock doesn't appear at the bottom of the browser. To me, I I don't see the difference in security between a secure page with insecure assets and a non-secure page with secure assets. Wouldn't both be susceptible to information leakage? And if not, why? I know from some casual tests, if you try to get information like cookies from the secure page in the iframe using scripting, that Firefox will return nothing, not giving the outer page access to the secure page's cookie information. Hmm. And IE will generate an access violation warning. But if I were a determined hacker, I'm sure I could find a way around this. What do you think? Well, there's a couple things going on here. First of all, um, we know how the basic model of a web browser is that you it retrieves the the HTML content for the page, and that content may then contain URLs of additional page assets, which it then needs to go and fetch. Um, the way URLs can be written is so-called relative URLs or absolute URLs. That is, oftentimes, you'll have a page where the assets on the page just say, for example, backslash image backslash, you know, red dot GIF, for example. And so what happens is the browser knows to append the HTTP and the flavor 
of HTTP, either not secure or secure. Also, the www dot or you know whatever the 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 domain is, and it assumes then that if you start if the you if the if the secondary URL begins with a backslash, that that means start at the root of that domain. If it doesn't, if it just if it just said image slash red dot gif, then it would assume that it was relative that was relative to the the location of the page that's being displayed. So there's a a relatively complex set of semantics that browsers universally agree ab- upon, and this was spelled out, you know, a decade ago. So it's 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 well established. The 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 beauty of not having to say HTTP colon slash slash and so forth for all of the resources on a page is that if you choose to display the page non-secure, that is with HTTP, just regular HTTP, then all of the assets will be loaded non-secure, and so everything is of uniform security. If, however, you did go to HTTPS colon slash slash and, and brought that page up, then if the assets did not themselves say HTTP and for S or not, that is, if they just left that part off and said slash image slash red dot GIF, then the browser because it uses the whole front part of the URL or reuses it from the page where the asset is, asset is located, it will automatically make connections of the same security as the page. So, so web designers that have been around a bit take advantage of that to deliberately prevent those kinds of mixed content messages. What happens is if the browser, for example, has brought you a secure page, then you tell it, oh, I want you to show this image, and you explicitly say HTTP colon slash slash without the S. If the page is secure and you're telling the browser, I want you to load this thing not secure, oftentimes it, it is generally configurable to suppress it. But in default, the default setting is the browser will warn you about mixed content. And that's something that, you know, users go, uh, oh, wait a minute, because, you know, they're often wanting to be on a secure page for a reason. And if they get something that pops up and, and is confusing them, they may just wander away and say, uh, I'm not going any further with this or I'm not giving you the information that your, your site is saying that it wants. Right. Now, the second thing happening is iframes. Iframes have been controversial because they're powerful right. and unfortunately you know very exploitable for malicious purpose and i the in the normal case you which we were just discussing you're loading you load html and then the assets you that that page requests are not other pages that is they're they're gifs and jpegs and cascading style sheets you know other non html assets an iframe allows you to embed an entire whole page within a page. That is, I stands for inline. So essentially, it, it, it is a, you create, you define a rectangular region, and you say to the web browser, go get another page, HTTP, you know, an HTML page, and render whatever that says in the frame. Well, it's, it's powerful and useful, but once again, with you know, when every time you hear me say powerful and useful, you think, uh oh, maybe a mild Gibsonian response there because because it, <laughs> it means there's opportunities for exploitation. And of course, iframes have been a big problem 
for exactly this reason. Consequently, web browser designers, contemporary web browser designers, have have taken a great deal of time and trouble to isolate the iframe from having any access outside of itself. That is, you know, they'll say, okay, fine, we're going to let you display this, um, but we're going to be very careful to restrict what can be done inside that frame. So, you know, my advice is avoid them if it's at all possible. I had to use an iframe um, in the cookie project that I worked on, uh, which we'll be getting back to as soon as I finish the DNS project, um, because it turns out that there are some mishandling of cookies in iframes, and the, the cookie forensics technology that I've got surfaces those and demonstrates when your browser is not doing the right thing with cookies, is allowing iframe leakage. In fact, there's an obscure bug in Opera that we discovered. I'm not even sure they fixed it yet where it's possible by doing some strange redirections in an iframe to get to confuse opera and get around its its management of that. So, you know, they're best avoided if possible because they're just an opportunity for problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they're so tempting. <laughs> they solve oh, they're, because they, they're so useful. Yeah, they, they solve, solve they problems use, so easily, yeah. Yes. But it is really a bad idea, I think. It's bad design. Wayne in Waldorf, Maryland disagrees about what mini might mean. He says, in 185, you said mini referred to the instruction set, as in mini computer. Uh, I let it go until I heard you say that again in 185A. I I disagree. Remember, the computers used to refer to the room-filling monstrosities. The only way a PDP-8 could uh, come close to that was if the room were a smallish closet. The minimal instruction set type computer was a RISC system, reduced instruction set computer. Yes, a PDP-8 may have had fewer instructions than an IBM 360, but a PDP-11 had a fair number of instructions, move, clear, or, XOR, and various type of branches along with a byte version of the same thing. And yet that PDP-11 was considered a mini-computer. Yeah, I always thought the mini-computer was mini because it was smaller than a mainframe. But yeah, you- it, it. I mean, I read the document in in um, Gordon Bell, you know, of, of DEC. Digital who, Equipment Corp. He should did, be. Yes. Yeah, he's I've, the guy. I read the document in Gordon's own, I mean, that, that he wrote where he was explaining that what they were aiming at was a minimal uh-huh. computer. And when you look at the PDP-8, I mean, I'm, I'm amazed. That, I mean, the thing has no high-level integrated circuits. It's just, it's just ands and or gates and flip-flops that put this whole thing together. So, I mean, it is truly a, a minimal computer. What Wayne is getting confused about is this notion of risk versus CISC, as it's called, right. a reduced instruction set computer and a complex instruction set computer. Um, there, the the idea was that there was a there was a tendency as these machines evolved in the early days. And again, this is I've gotten so much insight from reading the original working papers, the literally the design papers of. The PDP-8 and the PDP-11, which which Gordon has published on his own site, where you can really go back in time and remember what these people were thinking. And I read him saying that when they went when they were going from the PDP-8 to the PDP-11, which was sort of the logical progression from them, they he 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 wrote that because virtually all of these machines are being programmed in assembly language. Oof. We which you know you don't hear that anymore these no. days. 
he said, we want to make we want to make these machines easy to understand and easy and enjoyable to program. Mm -hmm. So they were they were literally deliberately designing a a complex instruction set machine that was a joy to program. And frankly, it's why I can't wait to retire, you know, when I'm 85 and get my hands on one of these, which is why I've been purchasing some of these old machines. I have PDP 11s now and, and VAXs even because that the VAX is the 32 bit extension of the 16 bit PDP 11 because, Oh my God, they just, they created the most beautiful instruction set specifically because they knew that that's what people were using. Well, of course, what they found was that many of these complex instructions were were difficult to implement but and expensive to implement and turned out not being used, especially by compilers. The compilers weren't taking advantage of the power of those instructions. So, so what's evolved is sort of a, a different philosophy of, of using more simple instructions, which can be executed more quickly instead of more singular, more complex instructions, which take many cycles to execute. If you're if you're a a programmer pro talking at the machine level, you'd rather have more powerful instructions and need fewer of them to be to express your intent. If you're a compiler, what's really more useful there is to have have fewer faster instructions that you can mix around in 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 a in a higher in in a, in a larger number of combinations and that's what the whole risk instruction set uh, approach does so it's reduced but it's reduced in computers that are no longer mini they're they're generally pretty maxi machines <laughs> maxi maxi not mini tyler gurney in orem utah has a uh, need of elaine's help uh, Steve, Security Now is my favorite netcast. I anxiously look forward to it every week. I'm a, a Spinrite owner since version 5, and I've used it many times. A proud lurker in your news groups. Looking forward to CryptoLink, as well as results from the DNS project, the Cookies project, the Testimonials <laughs> database, etc. I have about eight hours of audio that I need transcribed. I was wondering if Elaine would be a good choice. Do you give out her contact information? You know, we've run across this. Normally, I, I just send when, when people request it, I bounce email back to them with uh, the URL of Elaine's site. But I thought I would just give her a moment in the sun because yeah. she does such a spectacular job of these transcripts every week. Most people, I don't know how many people read the transcripts, but they are painstakingly accurate. I get I interact with her often several times where she'll need clarification on a term. She uses the net extensively to get the spelling of everything right. When I when we were first talking, she was doing medical conference transcribing where she's getting every medical terminology correct. I mean, so, you know, I love the accuracy of what she does. And I just found her by googling uh, and I just thank my lucky stars that it was she who I ended up contacting. I think I did because she has a, a web-based form that, uh -huh. uh, that she had at the time, and I was able to fill it out, and she got back to me the next day. That's cool. Anyway, See, she's have a website. on on-site media, on-site media, S-I-T-E-M-E-D-I-A.com for anybody who you know ever has a, a transcription need i just can't recommend her enough um she's just you know she's just terrific she's good and she's blushing right now <laughs> former she's a court reporter so she knows how to keep up 
Now, uh, we've been using as a trial uh, for Twit, uh, this service is called Pods in Print at podsinprint.com. And you can now get Twit transcripts, just the This Week in Tech Show transcripts, as well as Futures in Biotech from them. And uh, let us know what you think about this. These guys, uh, they are human transcription servers. I think they go to India, though. And uh, and uh, I'm not sure how they do it, but uh, they're not, you know, they're not handcrafted as much as Elaine's are. Uh, but it gives you it gives you something to read along and uh, often can give you some more information as you're listening. Um, so pods and print, we're probably going to do more shows uh, with them because inspired by you. Well, is, I know I know that Elaine is not the cheapest service yeah, around. We can't afford her for all our shows, I'm afraid. Right. Dave, David um, Lawrence asked me once what I was paying and, and, and he I think he was using some farmed out, you know, out of the country mm-hmm. uh, service that was much cheaper. But there's just I mean, I care about the quality. There's no way I would consider yeah. anything. So. Well, on your show, I think also every word uh, counts on Twitter. Every word does not count. <laughs> I can tell you right now. Many words should just be left out. Uh, let's talk about zip security. Joe Strunis in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Stephen Leo, I'm the chief technology officer of PKWare. Love it. Inventors of the zip file format. As such, I'm writing a response to the Security Now episode 184, where you commented that you heard Zip uses AES now. I happen to know a little something about the zip file format. PKWare is the uh, custodian of the app note. It's at pkware.com slash appnote.txt that defines the zip file format. To answer your question directly, as the inventors of the zip format, we've updated the standard format to support strong encryption capabilities using industry standard encryption. Yay. Combining AES with X.509 digital certificates provides sufficiently durable file protection that is every bit as strong as PGP. Support has been added to zip files with AES using either a symmetric key, a passphrase, or asymmetric key, which is X.509 V3 digital certificates, or both simultaneously. Additional security is provided using a digital signature, SHA-1 or SHA-2, to provide authentication. Signatures can be applied to individual members of the archive and or to the entire archive itself. Strong security is built on top of the standard zip invented by our founder, Phil Katz. So all the capabilities people have been using for over 20 years are still there, and now you can strongly protect files as easily as zipping. Zip encrypt, so you zip and encrypt. Zip encryption provides a platform-neutral solution which can be used across all platforms. What other technologies have been able to stand the test of time for over 20 years in this industry? Okay, other than spin, right? Strong security in Zip was developed as a hybrid crypto system. A hybrid crypto system uses an asymmetric public-private key combination to encrypt a symmetric key that is used to encrypt the files. That's what PGP does, right? Yep, and, that's, and we've talked about that way to do it many times. It's yeah. exactly the way to do it. Since the hybrid approach applies the compute-intensive asymmetric encryption to only the small symmetric key, it consumes minimal processing while providing fast, effective encryption with standard symmetric algorithms like AES. So the body of the message is using a, is using a symmetric key, but the symmetric key is passed using an asymmetric public-private system. Right. So even so, if you were specifying only public key encryption. It's it, it it handles the symmetric aspect of that transparently for you, just sort of right. un, underneath that. You don't need to worry about it. PKWare's solution for strong security is available in Secure Zip, an advanced version of the familiar PKZip program that includes a strong encryption support as part of the standard feature set. Secure Zip Express for Windows is free for non-commercial use. Right Which on. Is really neat. Yes. Yeah. It also includes a wizard to get a free digital certificate as well. Securezip.com is the URL for that. 
Uh, he says it runs on uh, ZOS, which is a mainframe operating system, i5OS, which is for AS400, Unix, Linux, Windows Server, and Windows Desktop. I don't see Mac in there. I know. I was wondering if, if maybe it being covered by, by Unix would do it, but probably you know, not. Apple builds a zip and unzip into its OS, and probably they felt there's not going to be much of a market in that case in the, um, on the Mac side. Yeah, but XP has this miserable zipping folder yeah, thing, too. True. In fact, Paul, I just heard Paul, you know, denigrating it before right. we began recording yeah, our we podcast. Use, we use uh, Izark, or he recommended zip, 7-Zip. But neither of them do this. Now, it's interesting because it sounds like this is part of the standard, so presumably it could be implemented by others. Right. It is now part of the standard. Yeah. Thanks for your unrelenting persistence to never miss a week of security now. <laughs> Keep up with the good work. Joe Strunas, CTO of PKWare. That's so cool. It's good to so, hear about them. They, uh, they, that's a great company. Well, yes, they've been around forever. In fact, I licensed their 16-bit uh, toolkit 20 years ago. Wow. Uh, in order to add inflate and deflate capabilities to something I was doing. I don't remember now what it was, but right. um, yeah, I mean, these are the guys. And the, I really think it's very cool that Secure Zip Express is if, is available in a, for, free for non-commercial Isn't use. Awesome. I'm going to check it out. And, uh, you know, in this in this new approach we're, uh, we've talked about of doing some more, you know, a little bit less techie and a little more practical application episodes, um, if it looks like it's warranted, I'm going to consider doing a, you know, doing a security now on, on exactly what the features are and how they work. Excellent. Yes. I uh, remember before Zip, it was Arc. Yeah. And I don't know and what there fact, was. There were Arc. there were some. Was it? Ah, uh, boy. There's RAR. S E A S E A self extracting archive, but that was a Zip format, I think. And I, but I thought that there were there was some battle over. Patents or formats or something. I remember there was oh, a yes. big messy legal battle. Yes, I don't remember. It was maybe it was between Arc and Zip, um, and one way or another that got resolved, and we ended up with Zip. <laughs> Thank goodness there's a standard. De facto, yeah. that was a case where the market really did a good job in settling it. The market is not notoriously good at, at creating standards, however. No. Tom Stewart in Arva, Ontario, Canada, wonders about the security of open source software. I'm ready to put on the gloves on this one. Hi, Steve. Love your Security Now podcast. My question relates to security and open source. I probably don't understand the open source process. My impression is the source code is made available to other parties who could then modify it to suit their needs. That's, that's correct. How are standards maintained for open source software? And what is to prevent a, ver- a version of Linux or other open source software, even security-focused applications, from having malware inserted and being distributed? Would it not be easy to put in a Trojan which could become active at any future point? Thanks for the show. Like many other users, I purchased Spinrite in appreciation for your efforts to put this show together. Well, that's a nice way to donate. Yeah. I've benefited from both listening to the podcast and running Spinrite on my failed hard drive. Well, what do you say on that? Well, I'm, I have a much more pro-open source position or a, 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 relative to his question than you might expect. I think. Oh no, you know, I'm, I wasn't going to box with you. Oh, oh. <laughs> I wouldn't box with you. Uh, I would no, box with I, him I, on this one. What, what the, the way the, the way the process normally works, as I have seen it, is you've got a couple custodians of you know of the master source archive, and a lot of people who are involved 
who come up with basically little patches. I mean, you know, once the, 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 the program is pretty much established, there aren't lots of changes you normally need to make to it. And, and anything that's changed is done in a, in a highly collaborative mode. So, for example, some, someone will, will submit a patch which says, okay, change the following lines from this to this. And, and, you know, and then a lot of people will look at it, they'll scrutinize it, and if it looks like it does the right thing, it'll get checked in. Now, certainly, you know, errors happen everywhere. We, we you know, they, they happen in closed source software. They hope they have, they hope they, woo, they happen in open source software. So, so the, I, my feeling is the process has every bit as much chance to prevent a problem as a closed source approach. Now, the one thing you don't want to do is to accept a a large software system which is open source from somebody who says oh hey i've improved you know linux here's joe's linux um you know install this on your system and and use it and trust it because there you know well, joe first, has there's gone a couple off. of issues first of all you can't call it linux Right. Uh, because one thing Linus did do is preserve the copyright. So if it says right. it's Linux, uh, I mean, I guess some guy could be a rogue Linux, but it wouldn't take long before the world would <laughs> beat a path to his door. Well, and, and, and I'm saying, you know, he, I, I didn't mean like in a, in a ma- major production environment right. where he's, right. he's, he's gone, gone, gone into business. Yeah, where, yeah. But it's like, hey, you know, some rogue. take you know, my yeah. version because, right. you know, because the source is open, it is absolutely easy for someone to exploit it for malicious purposes. And the, the, the point is they probably can't get that back into the master source tree, but they could certainly generate their own evil version and then try to get people that they know to, or maybe don't know to somehow run it. And, you know, you don't know what you're running. You know, some, you know, it's been one of the arguments, for example, against my, for me, um, publishing the source for my security related tools because I was concerned somebody could take one. I mean, they're all very small and, and, and tight. You know, the fact that they're an assembler would tend to hamper, you know, most people from, from messing with it, but still there are lots of people who know assembler, especially given something that's working. My concern was somebody could take it, mutate it into something bad and say, oh, you know, here's a copy of, you know, GRC's right. whatever. The difference and, is, in order to do that, he'd have to make it open source. So you could look at it and you could see what he did. Right. I think open source is always more secure. But you you have to be consider where you're getting software from in any case. In, I guess in any I would event. say that I guess I would say that with the with the openness of open source comes responsibility to make sure that the availability of the source code isn't isn't misused. Well, I would submit that you have to be careful who you take applications from in any event right any application can be malicious open or closed yes uh the advantage mistake because mistakes happen yeah open source doesn't make it more prone to that i can take your source code uh disassemble it and stick a bad thing in it fairly easily that's not a hard thing to do and then reassemble it and then say hey i've got leo's version of spin right right you'd be stupid to take it from me so I don't think open source makes that easier by any means. It's a trivial thing to add a branch to a disassembled code that that goes to a bad thing and, re, and rebuild it. Yep. That's not hard to do. 
the advantage is it's open. So if you're if you're getting open source code from somebody who's made it closed, he's violating the license. Don't take it from him. If it's open, presumably people are looking at the source code saying, what's he doing here? Right. And and running a big comparison or on you can do it if you want. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can look at it um, and just take it from reliable sources. But anytime you take software from anybody, take it from reliable sources. That's always a risk. I don't think open makes it any more risky. In fact, I think it makes it less risky. David Popovich, IT support in Stewart, Florida, wanted some go to my PC clarification. He says, Steve, I've been listening and learning from you for years. My question is about go to my PC. Leo's ads often say you can use go to my PC anywhere. And because of SSL, it's secure. A few weeks ago, I heard Leo say you could use it as an Internet cafe. Uh, In fact, I just said it at a shaky Internet cafe on Sunset Strip. This immediately bothered me because I wanted to hear from you as to why this is considered safe. If there's a key logging program on the Internet Cafe computers, well, okay. You know what? There could be somebody looking over your shoulder, too. There could be somebody ready to hit you in the head. That doesn't make it safe. <laughs> Go to my PC. is not going to protect you against everything. A compromising system would be uh, like handing the bad guys the keys to your entire system. Uh, Go to my PC is only as secure as the system you run it from, right? Of course, running it from your own laptop and a Wi-Fi hotspot through SSL is okay. Now, see, the guy's misunderstanding. I'm not saying it's safe in every case. There could be a camera over your shoulder. You're using your own laptop. It's not safe because it could be looking at your keystrokes. I'm saying the SSL is is like a VPN. VPN's not safe in that context Just, either. You refuse to get to the end of this question. All right. You? All right. <laughs> I mean, it's well, OK. Uh, of course, <laughs> running it from your own laptop with a Wi-Fi hotspot through SSL is OK. No, it's not. Same problem. Somebody could photograph you. But the advertisement doesn't clarify this at all. So using go to my PC on relatives computers, library computers, etc. would all be taboo, right? If the answer to my query is not favorable to go to my PC, then I suspect I may not hear a reply to this during your podcast. I realize they're an advertiser. If that's the case, I know your time is precious, but I would love to get the answer even if by email. Thanks to you and Leo for the great insight into today's wild, wild west online. Steve? So I completely agree with you, Leo. I mean, and and Dave, David is asking for something that... You know, for even my own program, CryptoLink won't protect you from. Right. That is, you know, I mean, the the message here, though, the reason I, I, I wanted to to present the question is that it's a perfect example of understanding the threat model that right. we've talked about, what it is you're protected from and what it is you're not. So so I mean, SSL, he's right to be aware of keystroke loggers. Absolutely. Ab- exactly. Yeah. And so so certainly it's the case that if you were. If you were in an internet cafe and you were going to use this system from somebody else's machine that, that you can't vouch for, or even, Leo, as you said, from your own laptop, but you might have somebody watching you enter your, your username and password, then you know that's, that's part of the threat model that you need to understand. So what a VPN system is offering is, is protection against a class of problems and there certainly there are things it's not protecting you from. For example, if go to my PC offered, you know, offered like the use of the VeriSign tokens, for example, the little football or or or, or the credit cards, a one-time password system, that would that would change it the the threat model, change its its security in 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 a different way than if you're using a static password and that's something certainly our listeners well understand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean Software can only protect you from so much. <laughs> Nothing's going to protect you if the ceiling falls in. Uh, let's see. Riley Wilcox in Truckee, California, wonders about sniffing email content. 
Hi, Stephen Leo. Thanks for the great show. Keeps my brain stimulated. I try to be a safe emailer and connect to my mail servers via secure protocols. However, once email is sent out from these servers, it's no longer protected. For really critical emails, I can encrypt the content, but I'd rather do that only when necessary. Few people are actually set up to receive PGP or GPG encrypted email. My question is, if an email is not encrypted, how hard would it be for someone to grab that content between my email server and the destination server? What, a tech, what uh, techniques would an attacker use? That's a good thing. So, and again, a threat model. Good thing to keep in mind. Yeah, and I thought this was a great question because a lot of people, I think, have a hard time visualizing the the inner workings of an ISP, a data center, mm-hmm. you know, like what is the Internet? They see it as, you know, a box on their desk that they plug things into and then it sort of magically disappears. The question then being, you know, well, OK, are there wires hanging outside of the ISP that some guy dressed in a telephone uniform with a, you know, with spiky shoes could climb the phone pole and, and connect to? Um so, so I wanted to sort of give, you know, paint a picture for people about what happens to their data once it goes wherever it goes. As he says, if he were to use a secure connection to the servers, for example, using, you know, SSL encapsulated email, then there's no way for anyone to to see his email as it's leaving his machine, as it's as it's getting essentially all the way to the ISP's server, whereas we know SSL, because it does endpoint to endpoint encryption, it would then decrypt it as it's sitting on the server. So now it's on the server in plain text format, and it's going to remain so from then on. So the 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 threat really is not, I think, to to a, any degree that's substantial from from you know random people certainly the the ISP which is to say the ISP's employees do have access to all that i mean the the networking level people the people in the network operating center the people who tend the servers the people who who are making sure the connections stay up and running i mean you know they're in the middle of the data so they have access to it they have access to everyone's email that that is you know in this form that is not maintained and packaged in its own encrypted envelope as you're sending it to its destination. So if nothing else, I guess the threat is, is, is watered down unless for some reason you were targeted, in which case, you know, if there was some reason for an ISP to, or an employee, a rogue employee to, you know, get all of the email or traffic or something to or from one specific customer, they have access to it. I mean, that's that's their job. That you know, this data is there, and nothing protects it. You know what I liken uh, it to is the post office. When you send a, uh, think of it as sending a postcard. Uh, it's going through the post office, completely available to anybody who wants to look at it. Yep. And the mail carrier and everybody, we trust them, or, or we just we trust in their disinterest. Yeah. And in fact, that's one. That, so so that le- leads me to the other threat. Which unfortunately is Big Brother. Yeah, you know, un, you know, we've 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 been through post nine eleven a an increase in surveillance. We don't know to what degree it affects us individually. We pretty much, I hope, it pretty much doesn't affect me. That is, you know, I have no reason to believe that it would. But 
But, you know, we know that there have been technologies employed where where ISPs have had devices installed that literally read everything that are filtering for keywords and performing matches. And and, you know, this was FBI technology at one point that that was that was discussed and apparently deployed. Carnivore, yeah. Carnivore. Exactly. So so, you know, that's. That's really a problem. We do know that law enforcement is unhappy about VPN, the growing use of VPN technology, because it blinds them to the actions of bad guys. I'm not happy about blinding anyone to the actions of bad guys, but I also want to blind malicious hackers and and non-governmental bad guys. So unfortunately, you know, law enforcement loses in the process. You know, I, it would be nice if only good guys protected themselves, um, but everybody can because it's powerful technology. So, so I guess anyway, to, to, to wrap this question, the, the, the idea is that, you know, this stuff is vulnerable. I think what we have to assume is that the people who are charged with tending it don't care. And whether that's Big Brother, who might be scanning everything, or, you know, random ISP employees that, you know, have better things to do than, than, you know, read random people's email. Um, we know that random people's email does get read sometimes. Sometimes it makes the news. Most often it doesn't. So I guess the, the answer is if, if it's really the case that you don't want your mail read, you, you need to take, you need to go to some measure to protect it until its recipient receives it. And that's either using something like PGP or secure zip as we just learned about, or, you know, some technology like that. Um, I guess the other difference is the post office, there's federal laws protecting you and protecting your privacy, which I don't think there is an email. Uh, sure. Wiretapping laws. Which, oh, maybe. Which, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I, I assume that every email that I send could be read unless I encrypt it. Period. My, Leo, mine are boring. I'm just, yeah. you know, go ahead and read them. Is, <laughs> someone is reading that. It's like, oh, well, that means they're not go ahead doing and read something them. else. So but you could say the fun. same thing about any phone call that you make. Right. You know, if you, unless you explicitly enforce privacy, you don't have any. Um, I've I've sometimes been cautioned when I'm having lunch with my attorney that to keep my voice down because it tends to go up. And I go. and I, I need that reminder. I'm yeah. glad for that reminder because yeah. you don't know who's at the table next to you. Yep. I mean, probably no one. Probably I'm just annoying them. Rather, rather than interesting well, them. That's in it. It's a, it, you know, I think relying on disinterest is like re- relying on security through obscurity. It, it works most of the time, but not all the time. <laughs> and, and the problem is that the, somebody who is interested probably doesn't have your best interest at heart. Uh, right. Last question from Pierre in Canada. They want, Pierre wonders about the wisdom of defragging today's huge hard drives. Hi, Steve. This week, a colleague told me about an article I then read on the internet and asked me what I thought about it. I wasn't sure what to answer him because the article seems to make so much sense. So I thought, hmm, who would know better than the maker of Spinrite? What we're wondering is, according to this article, uh, with hard drives getting bigger and bigger, defragging could have more negative impact on the drive than positive impact. The two arguments are that, well, first of all, with a drive of, say, 500 gigs or a terabyte, the time it takes is getting so long and that's... You know, a lot of work on a drive for a very long period of time. The stress could reduce the lifetime of the drive. Secondly, 
hard drive transfer rates are getting so fast that uh, the gain is not significant. Why bother to defrag a drive if you don't need to? So what do you think about this? Good job with Spinrite. I'm a programmer working in an IT department. We use Spinrite every day. Wow. Well, that's an interesting question. One of the things that we learned with Spinrite 6, when I first incorporated real-time smart uh, monitoring, S-M-A-R-T monitoring, where Spinrite is, is periodically polling the drive's smart data, um, one of the things Spinrite shows and watches is drive temperature. Hmm. And we learned that a lot of drives, especially laptop drives, um, easily get overheated. Um, many people have have had Spinrite stop, as it will, and warned them that their laptop drive is now at the manufacturer's upper limit of temperature. Um, or and, and sometimes this even happens with people who've de- who have desktop machines. Sometimes desktop machines that were designed for an earlier generation, smaller and less power-hungry drive, people will add a drive to the 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 existing enclosure or replace a smaller drive with a bigger one, which may draw more power and generate more heat. So the the ventilation, which was adequate for the cooler drive, isn't for the for the Ah, the hotter, more power hungry drive. We've seen that a lot. So the only the only real downside I can see is you really want to make sure that your drive is not overheating. Um, unfortunately, it's not easy to tell that. I mean, Spinrite has it built in, but you know, defragging programs don't. Um, the other thing is, I would if if the question is, I'm worried that defragging the drive might cause it to fail. Then my reaction is, whoa! Um, you absolutely want to solve that problem first. That is, you want to you one way or another, you want to be in a situation where. A drive failing cannot really hurt you badly, which means you either back up enough um, or you've got a RAID configuration, so you've got some redundancy. So if a drive dies, you're able to survive that because, believe me, I mean, I'm in the business. Drives do die. Um, Spinrite can fix a lot of them, but, you know, sometimes when the heads fall off or they, they seize up or they burn out or something happens mechanically, there's nothing any software could possibly do. So, do you think you need to defrag drives these days? Is the speed sufficient that you, it's not worth it? Well, it's interesting. The, Seek the, time is always going to be an issue. The isn't transfer it? rates have gone up, but the the hunger for data, right. I think, has gone up just as fast, if not faster, than the transfer rates. I mean, you know, our systems don't feel particularly faster, you know, than they used to. I mean, when when Windows Seven boots up in less agonizingly long time than Vista, it's like wow. That's faster. But, you know, we used to turn our machines on and they were booted by the time the CRTs warmed up. You know, that those days are long gone. So my sense is that, you know, drives are faster, but we're but everything is bigger. And so the bigness is completely offsetting the increase in data transfer rate. I still defrag. I, I, you do. I, How I, often? I don't do it. I don't do it fanatically. Um, I saw that my defragger was running that that is the 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 services. I've got two services that run w- w- with the third party defragger that I'm using, and I thought, oh, that's dumb, and I went and manually turned them off. But it reminded me that I hadn't defragged in a long time. What I norm my routine is when I'm you know I mean I'm running a raid, so I've got redundancy all the time. 
But every so often I want to take a snapshot. So what I'll do is I'll just go through, you know, a house cleaning. I will, you know, empty caches. I'll go, I'll look at the size of my, I'll sort by the, by file sizes, get rid of a bunch of junk that I just sort of accumulated through daily operation. Um, so, you know, sort of bring, trim the system down to a minimum working set size. Then I defrag it. Then I make an image of it. And so that's sort of a, you know, just a, a, an, an afternoon or maybe a couple hours of, you know, when, when the mood hits me, I decide, okay, it's time to do a little maintenance. You know, I get rid of everything I can first, then I defrag it, then I make an image, and then I feel good. Good. <laughs> I'm glad you feel good. I, I've been for a long time kind of one of those guys who says defragging is voodoo, or not voodoo, but it's overrated. The, do, it, do it every, you know, few months. That's all you need to do. And, uh, and It uh, also has the advantage that it's a little bit of a poor man's spin right. Right. Because it does check it, it doesn't it? Yeah. It does make the drive go and move stuff around. And moving stuff around, it makes it read it. And if if the drive discovers sectors that are beginning to be problematical, the drive can relocate those to better physical sectors. So it's not just logically moving it, it's actually physically retiring sectors that are bad. You don't get any guarantees that it hasn't missed spots. So, which is where SpinRight comes in because it does a whole drive read essentially and, and you know, re-verification. But it is, you know, it's, it has a beneficial effect, I think, that is probably greater than its deleterious effect so long as you're not overheating. All right. So keep it cool, man. Yeah. <laughs> Steve, a great 12 questions as always. We love our listeners. You guys are, are, are smart and, and always raise interesting issues and we're so glad you're right. Go to Security Now's webpage, grc.com slash feedback to submit questions for our next Q&A episode, two episodes hence. Of course, while you're at GRC, buy a copy of SpinRight, download all of those great programs, check out the show notes, the 16 kilobit versions of the podcast, and all of that stuff, too. It's a great website, grc.com. And Steve, we'll uh, see you next week. Talk to you then, Leo. Thanks. Security Now.